This morning we're going to continue a message series that Pastor started last week. We're talking about law. It's been my experience that people can get a little funny when it comes to law. Most people I've known will agree that law is a good thing, or at the very least a necessary thing, to have a orderly and civilized society. And therefore, most people will agree that laws need to be enforced until those laws are enforced on them. Then I have found that those same people will find those same laws to be very inconvenient. And I experienced this a lot during a time in my life when I tended to write tickets to the driving public. It was expressed to me very often how inconvenient this was. I don't do that anymore, and I have found that people have gotten much nicer. But we aren't talking about man's laws here. We're talking about God's law. And in this series, we're talking specifically about the Ten Commandments, which were the foundation of a much larger body of law that God ordained and gave to his people through his servant Moses. This morning, we're going to look at the first of those Ten Commandments. We find it in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 3. And it reads, You shall have no other gods before me. It seems like a simple enough statement, eight simple words. But there are important things that are hidden in this simple commandment that may not be obvious up front, and I want to explore those with you today. The first thing I'd like you to consider is that this commandment doesn't just tell us what God wants us to do. It starts to tell us who God is. But what exactly does it tell us about his nature and his character? You shall have no other gods before me. Is this the dictate of an authoritative and self-consumed and power-hungry supreme being? Some people would say yes. And this is an important point for us to remember that we should never look at any verse of Scripture by itself. Any verse we want to consider must always be considered in the context of Scripture. And for the sake of this morning and brevity and clouds that aren't raining on us yet, I'm going to consider this from the context specifically of the first two verses that precede, immediately precede, Verse 3. So consider Exodus 20, verses 1, 2, and 3 together. And God spoke all these words I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In this context, we see that this is not a God determined to control. People, but is a God determined to free people. This is the expression of a loving God who desires to protect his people. So that's where the law, starting with this first commandment, starts to give us an idea of who God is. But the law and this commandment goes further because it starts to define who God's people are. Because with the law and starting with this first commandment, God draws a line. And on one side of the line are those who submit to his authority and acknowledge and desire to obey his law. They are God's people. 
And on the other side of the line are those who reject God's authority and reject his law and thereby declare they are not God's people. And there's no other options. All humanity falls on one side of this line or the other. And that line is established through the law. So if this commandment and the law that proceeds from it identifies God and identifies his people, then by definition it defines the relationship of God to his people. Tim Chester, a pastor and an author in the United Kingdom, in his book Exodus for You, regarding the Hebrews' exodus and the establishment of God's law, writes, quote, Here he, God, creates his people as his people. And through his law, he orders or reorders them. The law symbolizes the reordering of creation, a cosmos jumbled by sin. End of his quote. God made this world perfect. And he made the man and the woman in perfect relationship with him. But they sinned. And because of the sin, the world, the creation, and all of mankind bears the curse of sin. Outside is always a challenge. Now let me regain my spot. So we see with the God establishing the law, he starts to reorder what man had ruined. And that's what we're entering as we look at this first commandment and as we move through this series on the Ten Commandments. Now, this idea of other gods. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, because you're here, you probably already believe that there is only one God. Okay. I talk with my hands, and this is not working up here this morning. You know what I'm talking about. And if you consider that the three major religions of the world are monotheistic, I'm going to go further out on my limb and say that most people in the world will agree that there is only one God. We may disagree on the nature and character of God. We may argue about it. We may fight about it. But we have a consensus that there's only one God. And God himself who created everything, knows there is no other God. Yes, I do. Oh, you are an angel. My kingdom for a clip. Now we can proceed. Now I've got to remember where I was. This gets so hard at this point of life, doesn't it? God must know there's only one God because he didn't create any other gods. So if God knows there's only one God, and we know there's only one God, what is the point of this first commandment? There are no other gods except the gods we make for ourselves. God created us with an amazing mind, an amazing imagination, and a desire to create And through the history of mankind, we've done some creating. And we have fashioned with our talent all kinds of little doodads and given them cute names and called them gods. 
But we're not talking about those today because that is the subject of next week. But even if we take idols and graven images out of the mix, we as humanity still retain an ability, an amazing ability to lift up ideas and pursuits to the point where they are nothing less than our gods. And I'll give you an example from the scripture. There's a story that we find in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about a young man who approached our Lord during his public ministry and his teaching. And remember, his teaching was based on repentance and salvation. And I want to read you this account from the Gospel of Mark. So I'm going to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 23, where it reads, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were perplexed because in that time, in that culture, a person who had wealth and prosperity was seen to be blessed by God. They were in good relationship with God. And conversely, anybody who was poor, impoverished and infirmed must not be in a good relationship with God because God is punishing them for their sin. That was the idea at the time, and Jesus turns it on his ear when he says it's hard for the rich to enter heaven. And he explains it a little further as this story goes a few verses further down. He says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The problem was not with this man's wealth. The problem was how he elevated his wealth above everything else, including God. This man, in his time, would have been considered a good young Jewish man. He did his religion. He went to synagogue. He knew and obeyed the commandments, as far as he thought. But God points out to him that he is not obeying the first commandment. He has another God above the living God. And that was his problem. That's why God tells him, sell it all. He's not telling all of us to sell what you have. He said this specifically to this man because this man, his wealth and everything that came through, uh, came from it, his comfort, his status in society. Luke tells us the man was a young ruler. So he had position and power and authority. He was living large and living good. But he idolized it all. And Jesus said, to follow me, to honor the first commandment, you need to put this aside. 
I know a wise man who on this subject says, you know a man's gods by observing how that man spends his time and how he spends his money. He says, show me a man's checkbook and I'll show you that man's gods. This man's a money guy. You, you get the point. Anything can become a god and we have to be careful of it because it blocks us from God by blocking us and impeding us from acknowledging and obeying this first commandment. Have no other gods before me. So does this mean we have to cast everything aside in our lives, give up jobs, give up families, live in a cave as a hermit, chant the name of God until the day we die or the day he comes back? That's not what this says. It says we can't lift anything to the point where we treat it as a god. That's the caution. Because when we do that, we put up a wall that keeps God out. God will not break down our walls. We have to pull him down and invite him in. So these other gods, gods of our making, can be anything that hold us in bondage or hold us in the bondage from which God desires to free us. He came to the Hebrews and said, I rescued you. And remember, in that historical time that he talks about, the generation that first heard that commandment had just recently walked out of Egypt. They had not been there as visitors. They'd been there for 400 years. And they were there as slaves in bondage compelled in their labor, hated, and the hate against them was legitimized by Egyptian law. God says, I took you out of Egypt. I took you out of your slavery. Don't put any gods before me. In this command, God also, he shows us the exclusivity of his sovereignty. He is the only God. He cannot, he cannot enter relationship with us if we bring baggage with us. We have to come to him alone. We have to cut everything else loose and honor him. So, for example, in a marriage, a young man and a young woman, to be godly, and to abide by the biblical standards that were given, to be children of God, each one must come to the other first and foremost with their relationship with God. That has to be their individual priority so that when they come together, it becomes their, their unified priority. A marriage is not a man and a woman. It's a man and a woman with God over the top of it. That's the godly marriage. That's the blessing that God wants to give us if we tear down our gods. What gods? Well, I've often heard and said in, in, in the world, if you marry, your spouse is your first priority. And when you have children, your children must come first. But neither of these are what the Scripture tells us. The Scripture tells us, starting with the first commandment, God must come first. And when we put that first then we allow God to enter the relationship with us that he desires and he blesses the marriage and he blesses the families. Does that mean there's no hard times in the road? Of course not. We all know better than that. He doesn't promise us 
no problems, but he gives us a beacon of light that help us navigate through the problems. So that when we have in our marriage, and some of us may, hard times, rough times, where maybe a little voice inside is saying, no. We look beyond our emotions. We look beyond our limitations. We look to the Almighty God and we say yes, because God said yes. And God isn't leaving me on my own to do this. He comes through it with me. He shows me the way. He lights the way. He goes through the way with me. And he blesses the marriage. And he blesses the children. And he blesses the family. So everything we do that is good, we should do. But we can't idolize it. Nothing can be up with the living God. This idea of having no gods before me, think of it as having no gods when you go before God, before his throne. We have to cast everything else aside and trust him. And in this story that Mark gives, it goes further, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, anybody who gives up anything for me, their, their mothers, their fathers, their children, their jobs, whatever it is, he says, in this world you will get it back blessed a hundred times more. And in heaven you will have eternity, eternal life. He also says there will be persecution, but it's okay. He comes through it with us. Consider that the first commandment is not only first in sequence, it is first in substance. It's first in significance. The Israelites, as I said, had just come out of Egypt. The, the generation that heard this word remembered the bondage and the hardship. They still bore the scars of the taskmaster's whip on their own backs as they're hearing this message from God, have no gods before me because I brought you out of that. The first commandment is the entryway to the law and the entryway into relationship with God. We cannot proceed in adherence to the law or in any other way seek relationship with God until we comply with the first commandment and have no gods before him. About this, Tim Chester wrote, quote, The first commandment is the root of all the others because whatever matters most to us is what will determine our behavior and our emotions. Our response to the first commandment determines the lens through which we see and the door through which we walk as we seek and seek to understand our relationship with God. I've been speaking in a historical context so far. The commandments that God gave to the Hebrews uh, centuries, millennia ago, in a specific time and place in history. And the scripture does give us historical context. But this is the word of God. It is eternal and universal in its scope as well as historical. So through God's Holy Spirit, he reaches down and speaks through the ages to every human being 
and every human being who will listen to his word can also be rescued. Rescued from what? Is there anybody here who has not experienced at some time of their life bondage of some sort? Something in your life that held you and burdened you and bent you and caused you pain and suffering and shame and regret. Maybe for it was for a season. Maybe it's ongoing. Maybe it was something imposed upon you. Maybe it was something you created for yourself. And even if anybody could say, never experienced that. We all bear the burden of the fallen world. We're born into a sinful creation. We're born with a sin nature because of the original sin of the man and the woman and the curse upon the creation. We are all born into bondage. And God reaches through history to our own time and speaks to our own hearts and says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of your Egypt and out of the land of your slavery. Don't put any gods before me. He desires to reach us. And the only thing that stops him is us. So we enter the law. We cross the line to declare we are God's children through the law initially, because we all know if you've read ahead in this book, and I know some of you have, you know that eventually we're going to run into a little problem with law. But that's a message for another day. Today I'd like you to consider and dwell on the first commandment. Know that we need a rescuer, just like those Hebrews in Egypt needed a rescuer. And put no other gods before the living God who loves you. Amen.